Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President Dr Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. When I consider the successful chiropractor, invariably I think of someone who is dedicated, skillful, and a great communicator. Being able to communicate well helps build patient confidence. It makes them feel like they're in the right place and sets the scene for healthy and positive decision-making. Conversely, Poor communication is well recognized as a factor for complaints made against health practitioners. So improving your communication skills can not only help build your practice, but is a vital step in risk management. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with a real expert in patient communication. Dr. Martin Harvey is a chiropractor and leads, uh, who leads a multi-doctor family practice in Melbourne. He's also a highly sought after speaker for his expertise in state-of-the-art chiropractic communication strategies and teaches chiropractors around the world how to better communicate the value of chiropractic. You may be familiar with Martin's Whiteboard Wednesday videos, and he's recently started his own podcast show called Under the Influence. Importantly, Martin will be touring the country with the ACA patient comm circuit coming to a city near you in the second half of 2021. And there'll be more information about that later in the podcast. Martin was awarded the Chiropractors Association of Australia, Victoria Chiropractor of the Year Award in 2012 and Parker Seminars uh, 2010 International Chiropractor of the Year. Hi, Martin, and welcome to the ACA podcast. Thanks so much to have, for having me. It's great to see you. So this isn't your first time on the podcast, of course. We've uh, had you, uh, I think it was some 30-something. Some we're, we're up to podcast 75. So somewhere in the 30s, I'm pretty sure I um, interviewed uh, you yep. about patient communication. But things have changed uh, since then, and you're now doing your own podcast. Tell me about that. So the idea with the podcast is just I was looking to, I, I sort of think that communication is a super important topic and we'll probably get into some of the reasons why it's so important for us. And I love doing the Whiteboard Wednesdays and I love presenting full seminars. And I was really looking for something that was somewhere in between, somewhere where I could on a regular basis help chiropractors better communicate the value of chiropractic in their community and go into it in a bit more depth. And I, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself. I find it a really useful way where you can download information, think about important things on the go and sort of make use of that sort of dead time when you're commuting or doing sort of menial things. And so I just really wanted to explore some of these ideas that I'm really passionate about. And I thought a podcast was a really great format to, to go into some of the ideas in a bit more depth and hopefully help some chiropractors make more of an impact um, through a better, uh, I guess, sort of more nuanced understanding of how you can communicate chiropractic. Well, as you can well imagine, I'm also a fan of, uh, of podcasts and we'll make sure, Martin, yes. that we do uh, send, uh, have your link to your uh, podcast um, with the mail out that goes out to, to members. So this is all about communication. Why is the skill of communication so important for a health practitioner? 
So you mentioned in the intro the sort of defensive practice aspect of it, and that's certainly part of it. There's a lot of evidence that if we look at complaints and whether people sue somebody, they're much less likely to sue somebody who who they feel connected to, who they feel has been respectful to them, who they like. And uh, we also know that at the basis of a lot of mix-ups between where people get upset, there's a communication breakdown or misunderstanding or not being on the same page. So I think from that defensive perspective, working on communication skills is super important. What I think is really underappreciated is that communication skills do improve patient outcomes. And we can go into some of the literature around that if you're interested, but there's sort of some direct ways um, in terms of people being more likely to follow through, people get more likely to get a correct assessment and diagnosis, people more likely to get an appropriate care plan, a whole lot of documented benefits for uh, where clinicians have worked on um, strategies for better communication. Um, and I also think for us, it's a, uh, it, it's a more uh, rewarding style of practice when people understand why they're there and what their options are. It's a less stressful way of practice. And um, it also, your practice tends to grow if you've got better um, communication skills. People are more satisfied with your care. They're more likely to stay around. They're more likely to refer others. So I sort of look at it, it's like the, the super skill. You need a lot of skills to be a successful uh, chiropractor, but communication skills are kind of the, again, the super skill that then enhances every other skill that you have. Uh, it's definitely something you just cannot do without, that's for sure. Um, what do you think are the key things that are important for people to understand when, if they want to be good, a good communicator? Okay, I guess I, a couple of the things that I think are really important to um, have as skills are uh, an understanding that there's telling people what to do no matter how charismatic you are or how energetic or excited you are isn't a very effective way of of communicating things and if we look at it we've got an interesting sort of situation as chiropractors in that we are communicating with people often from a paradigm that is different to their paradigm around health. So the significance of that is one of the core understandings that you get from the influence literature. And so going back a little bit, the name of my podcast is Under the Influence, not because I'm necessarily always drinking while I'm (laughs) doing the podcast, but often under the influence of great coffee. Um, But it's to do with, I think, the answers or the direction for us to, to do better at communicating the value of chiropractic is to really look at what the evidence um, suggests are effective ways of communicating. And most of that research comes from an area called the influence literature. So the influence literature, kind of the first idea is that people do what they do because they believe what they believe. So Mm. if we look at the things that frustrate chiropractors, we have things like people stopping care when they're only partway through resolving an issue or not doing exercises or any of those other things where to us it seems like, well, if you want this result, this is what you have to do. Why aren't you doing it? Yeah. Um, I think it's really important 
that we sort of look at it from a patient-centered perspective and say they're doing that because they believe that that's the appropriate way to approach things. And so if we want to be better communicators, we've almost got to recognize that we're not so much about telling people what to do. We've got to go a level higher than that in terms of engaging with people and recognize there's kind of like a hierarchy of what's likely to change people's beliefs and therefore their behaviors. And part of that is a recognition that our beliefs, if, if you had a, if you, if everybody already had a set of chiropractic beliefs, they'd use chiropractic the way chiropractors use chiropractic, which is, you know, most chiropractors tend to go and get a, a checkup and an adjustment on a regular basis. And then if they've got something really important to do, like if you've got a stressful, if you had a bike race or you had a, a, a big uh, stressful event, you were doing a presentation or something, you'd probably go and get a checkup, but that's informed by a whole set of beliefs that make that an obvious thing to do. And they're not the predominant beliefs. They're sort of built on this belief system that how your body works influences everything you do and that an adjustment is a good way of helping your body work better. Um, if we want people to adopt different uh, behaviours, we've got to engage in the work of effectively helping them change their beliefs, which telling them is actually the weakest way of changing beliefs. We've got to go further up that and have a more engaging approach where we're asking questions or even better than that, we're framing people, helping our communication to frame the experience that they're having so that they can see the limitations of a, a simpler or more symptomatically oriented health belief system. I remember when I was first in practice in the early 90s, uh, it was all about the report of findings and uh, it was done with a great deal of enthusiasm. It took a, hot, you know, a long time to, to deliver and pretty much everything from uh, the name of Didi Palmer's two horses um, was in yeah. the, that re uh, report of findings. And it, I guess it gave little credence to um, the individual reasons that the people were coming in there to see you or yep. what their belief systems were. It was very much here. It is all in a blurb. And I guess looking back at that now, it's, it failed for many reasons. One, because as you said, people weren't uh, individualizing, their, individualizing their message to the person in front of them, understanding their beliefs and maybe trying to get a whole lot done in one foul swoop rather than developing yeah. a relationship. Absolutely. So a few things that I would double click on there. Um, first one is, if we look at the, the era that you and I have practiced in, a couple of things have uh, been kind of changes in what is seen as the best styles of practice. And number one, there would be the move towards evidence-based practice. And number two would be patient-centered or client-centered or person-centered practice. And while if we look at evidence-based practice, there's classically, you know, Sackett's definition of three different uh, legs of that stool, best available evidence, your uh, clinical experience. But the third stool of the patient's values and expectations, our old style report of findings really violated that because it was all about our agenda rather than actually starting from a perspective of if we want to practice in an evidence-based perspective, we need to start by understanding what their values and goals are. Um, connected to that personal patient-centered practice, also it, it shows that you get better outcomes for people if you have more of an inquisitive rather than I've got a hammer, this is why you're a nail, having yeah. more of an inquisitive approach of 
what what would be meaningful for you in terms of getting improvement in the situation that you're in. And we can lead people on a path from if their goals initially are pain-based, then we can take them from that perspective and see, allow them to see a perspective that there's potentially a preventative um, aspect to the relationship and even on to what I would think of as a performance or wellness basis. However, we've really got a, um, the influence literature tells us very, very uh, clearly that we've got to start from a, a um, build a relationship first. Mm. Another idea from the influence literature that you also mentioned in the, your initial question there was the relationship part of it. And people essentially buy you before they buy your message. Yeah. And the first thing that we've got to do is really, uh, there is quite a lot of literature around people's expectations on a first visit. And the first thing is they want to be heard. They want to be acknowledged. So we need to sort of hold off the chiropractic part of it certainly we can give them a path forward but at that stage they don't really care about chiropractic in fact you know to, to a large degree I would contend that people don't even really care about health that much what they care about is what their current circumstance is stopping them from doing yeah. that they value and that typically is either things that they have to do things that they love to do or things that they see as their role or identity to do. And if we can understand that, then we've got a, the ability to then uh, communicate chiropractic in a way that's meaningful for them. So, mm. you know, as a concrete example, if you have somebody coming in, say a, a new client that I had a couple of days ago who is really struggling with back pain i'm not talking to her a lot about subluxation physiology i'm talking to her about well, what's it stopping you from doing and her being really upset and worried that she can't pick up her daughter who's 18 months old um, and so a lot of us talking about what's important for her in the the initial stage is let's get you back to being able to pick sadie up so that part of it is just really recognizing that people don't care about chiropractic and in fact she doesn't at that stage care about her health she cares about what she's not able to do mm, absolutely i guess like any skill communication is something you need to work at uh, you need to train yeah. and you need to consider um, there's also a great value in communication and being authentic and we're all different and i guess the question i'm asking is how do you get strike that right balance between maintaining your authenticity and not coming yeah. across as though you're too scripted or you're overthinking things when you're talking to people. Yeah. So there's a couple of things there that I would say. So if you're very new in uh, practice, I think having things fairly sort of not absolutely scripted, but having a communication template um, is the best sort of balance. So here are the three bullet points that I need to get across in this um, interaction. And then being in the moment of then covering those three bullet points is sort of the balance. Um, so the, the second thing that I would say is that if you're using a lot of questions rather than long explanatory paragraphs of information or giving people a piece of information and asking, what do you think about that? Or then that's, a, then you can have those little snippets really quite scripted. And because there's that, to and fro in a conversation, then it it takes away from that thing of it. Oh well, you, you must have said this a million times to a million people since. Yes, yeah. So sometimes there's going to be it's 
a very obvious solution to a chiropractor when they're dealing with a patient in terms of either the care that they might need or the behaviors that they might need to change with their lifestyle to improve yeah. their health and well-being. And some people are very keen and ready for that message and, and others less yep. so. How do you yeah. pose that to people so it's not, I'm right, you're wrong? Yeah, that's a really important thing because if we look at behavior change in general, um, the I mentioned earlier that there's more or less a hierarchy of what will change people's belief and therefore their behavior. And the, the most powerful thing that will change people's belief is where they experience something that shows them that their current level, their current behaviors or beliefs aren't serving them. The next most uh, powerful thing is where they have to think and say something or just think something that shows them that uh, that there's something that's missing in their current understanding. So strangely, sort of communication like health comes from inside out rather than outside in. Um, but then if you have somebody essentially uh, making you wrong for your current beliefs or preferences, we are very strongly wired to not enjoy being made wrong. In fact, um, it, it's seen as being sort of an attack on our self-efficacy and um, we uh, react pretty emotionally to people making us wrong. And even bigger than that, if we overstep the mark and sort of try and cajole people into doing things that they haven't said that they're wanting to do, it can create what in psychology they call as reactance. And reactance is where people essentially push back when they feel that their good their ability to make their own decisions is being impinged upon and refuse to do something even if they see it as it would benefit them. They just know oh, that it feels wrong and sleazy. I don't want to do it. So one of the key things from a communication perspective that we can do to minimize the chance of people feeling that you're, so you can be very emphatic and say, look, Anthony, I really think the best thing for you to do if you want to achieve the goals that you've spoken about is X program of care and you need to do these exercises. And if somebody says, look, I really don't, and I would suggest you do it preemptively, you use what in psychology they talk of as autonomy statements, which is essentially reiterating, look, it's entirely, entirely up to you what you do, Anthony your choice, whether you can do nothing, you can do part of what I'm suggesting or do all of it. Uh, and then you outline what you're saying, but that just, it's the choice is yours reinforces that you recognize their right to make decisions for themselves and it yep. dissipates the chance of reactance. So that balance of us needing to be very clear and in some circumstances needing to be I guess sort of pretty emphatic or to that look this is the scenario if you don't do things pretty dramatically differently to how you are things aren't going to change so those people who have really embedded issues where they need a lot of change we need to be quite frank with them however if we couch it in a with an autonomy statement or we proceed it with an autonomy statement that emphasizes it's up your choice is yours you don't have to do anything but if you're looking for the best way out of this situation this is it then that's a a very engaging way of balancing those two uh, i want to explore that a little issues. bit further the idea of patient choice and being patient-centered yeah. when do you, and again this probably um gets back to older and inappropriate ways of communication where it might've been, this is what chiropractic is. So it's my way or the highway. When yes. do you 
choose to accept that a patient will follow through a little bit, but but not a lot, and you're okay with that, and they're yep. okay with that. Is there is there do you need to come to a decision up front, or is that something again that just evolves along the way? I guess there's it depends. Is the 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 most direct answer. And the challenge with a more nuanced perspective around communication is the old my way or the highway strategy that, you know, I've certainly used in the past and still feel a bit guilty about (laughs) to this day. The advantage of it was very clear and it sounded very snappy when you talk to other chiropractors about my way or the highway. The challenge is though, that if you're looking at behavior change, it doesn't really it doesn't really work that well because for a lot of people, if you're asking them to adopt a new behaviour, whether that's taking on certain exercise strategies, changing certain things in their diet, or choosing to have chiropractic care on an intensive basis, giving people an ultimatum isn't a really great way of uh, of of getting them to to adopt a new behaviour. So most people would want to dip their toe in rather than jump into the deep water. So what I suggest we do is we structure and and on the the flip side, and I think probably what we're both, sort of the advantage of the my way or the highway is that you don't really want to set people up for failure by saying, um, if you know somebody needs a certain amount of input to achieve a change, pretending that look just come once and see how you feel is a recipe for failure so to me it's really just a thing of being um, pretty direct with people and so in that scenario again recognizing that if you're being direct that there's the potential to make people feel like they're being not attacked but that you're essentially trying to persuade them you just it's about pre-framing the communication so in a scenario let's say the the most extreme in that scenario where i think somebody needs a whole bunch of care and they're a bit like i don't really know whether that i want that i and i can say to them you don't have to do anything you could get a second opinion you could choose to do nothing you could choose to do this or you could choose to do a small piece of it and sort of we could reassess we could zoom in and rather than this X weeks or months or whatever program that I've suggested is optimal for you. I think a realistic piece of that where you might be able to assess how you were going would be, let's say half that, would that be more palatable to you if we did half of that? And then we paused at that point to reassess whether you felt you were headed in the right direction. And Mm. if somebody wanted even less than that, then you could say, look, is it okay if I'm really, really direct with you? So you ask permission first because then people feel that you're essentially communicating to them that you're sensitive to the sensitivity of the circumstance and you're also sensitive that you're in an area where it's really their right to make decisions. And you'd say, look, I'd love to be able to take you on for that. My concern is that with, with that shorter time frame it's not really realistic for us to get enough change for you to be able to uh, assess at that point. So, and it's really that conversation that needs to happen and also reiterating more or less that autonomy, those autonomy statements and permission statements that have the effect of helping them feel and know that you're keeping their 
uh, rights and decisions as the primary focus. Yeah. Um, you can you go through uh, key strategies? I know you're going to be doing this uh, in a fair bit of depth um, yeah. in the yes. your seminars, the ACA seminars that will be going around the country, which I'll give dates and information about uh, shortly. But can you maybe just give us a snapshot of some of the, these key strategies that you talk about? Okay. Yeah, so I think I think that's a great idea because if we look at the sort of ideas that we've gone into, we, we, it can spiral out into a really complex ball of string pretty quickly. But the, the good thing is that there's some pretty simple structures or uh, templates to how you can think about communication. And I think Cialdini, so Robert Cialdini is arguably the sort of godfather of the influence literature. He's a psychologist and he really started a lot of this research into how can we present information in a way that's easier for people to take on. And the way that he structures it is he looks at sort of three stages to effective communication or effective um, interaction with somebody in this sort of environment. And the first one is um, that uh, we need to build a relationship that um, people that we're social creatures and that we need to build a relationship. And there's a whole bunch of strategies. So in the seminar, we'll be going through a number of different strategies to quite quickly and efficiently connect with people and have them and make sure that they feel that sense of connection. Probably the easiest one that I can um, just give as a quick thing for the purpose of a podcast is he talks about the idea of unity um, that we naturally are sort of tribal we we feel a connection to people who see the world the same way as we do and that can be in a whole bunch of different ways so you and I feel a connection not just because we're friends but because we're chiropractors and then we feel a connection because we both have an interest in surfing and we both have an interest in food and wine and there's these we can feel parts of different tribes and so a really useful way very early on in uh, when you meet somebody either in a social circumstance or for this scenario somebody coming in as a new patient is to before you leap straight into clinical mode where you're sort of processing them through a, a process, you connect with them as a human. And so that can be a commonality if they've been referred. Let's say, you know, Lisa referred you to, to me. I could say, oh, so you, I see Lisa referred you. How is it that you know Lisa? Or you guys play tennis together. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, you. and so we've got this now shared relationship because we've both got a connection with Lisa. Or if we don't, if it's not a referral, then let's say your job is you're an engineer, then I show an interest in, okay, so what sort of engineer are you? Um, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer. Okay, I always feel like because we do a lot of work in biomechanics that we're kind of closest to that because we're always talking about those type of mechanical concepts, what sort of area do you work in? And so you just, it's a 30 second conversation that can be whatever there is in that initial paperwork, more or less, that you can create a sense of commonality. Yeah. And from a psychological perspective, it helps a, from a couple of perspectives. It starts a relationship because a relationship is based on a conversation, a two-way discussion. And it also shows that they're being seen as a person rather than just undergoing a procedure. Absolutely. And I imagine this is, I mean, everything you've just said there is obviously critically important for a practitioner-patient relationship, but it's really important for any first-time relationship, isn't it? 
Absolutely, absolutely. So Cialdini talks about that. Now, there's a lot more to that. I don't want to pretend that that's the only thing you need to do to build a relationship. Otherwise, you know, we'd have a pretty terrible relationships broadly. But to begin a relationship in a quick, efficient way, that's a really useful, just simple strategy that you can implement tomorrow. Um, the next thing that we need to do is we need to recognise that in general, people are going to be feeling a degree of uncertainty about any new environment, about any new situation. And I think chiropractic has the potential to, to have it, people feeling even a little bit more uncertain because we've got this real paradox of phenomenal patient satisfaction of people who have seen us, but a great deal of uncertainty in the broader community. Yeah. And so we need to have built-in strategies of reducing people's uh, uh, uncertainty and so some of that can be a lot of what we've sort of touched on already so really useful strategies to reduce uncertainty early on is to explain things in advance so mm. i'll create that point of connection with you i'll get you to say look how can i uh how, do, how can i help you anthony and get you to tell me a little bit about what's going on and then i'll use um, what I think, think of as a yes-yes consult, which is essentially to say, look, from what you've told me so far, this is what I need to do to see what might be the best solution for you. And then I, I sort of get that agreement to this is what's going to happen and kind of the, address a lot of the, the uncertainty that we know people might have in yep. taking on chiropractic care, that something might happen to them that you didn't warn them first, that everything's going to feel comfortable in terms of the testing, uh, that this is when I'll tell you if I think I can help you, if I don't think this is how I'll manage that. But just explaining all of those things in advance. A second thing that is to preemptively, before you map out what your recommendations are, whether that's on that visit or in on a second visit, if you do it as a report of findings separately, um, those autonomy statements reduce uncertainty because it reduces the chance of uh, them uh, feeling that you're trying to impose your will rather than allowing them to uh, assert their will. Um, and the third phase, so first phase was relationship, second phase is reduce uncertainty, third phase is motivate action. And that's really where we start to look at that discussion that we had earlier, where um, people are motivated way more by solving problems than they are by being abstractly uh, better, which to chiropractors with a positive health perspective can be a bit of a frustration, but it, it's the truth that um, in general, we will prioritize getting a problem sorted out over just being abstractly better. And Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel laureate um, in behavioral uh, economics, estimates it's 400% more motivated. So in terms of motivating action, what I think we need to do is use a series of questions that I call unpacking questions that are really questions that give you clinical information and they also help to understand what their, the person's intrinsic, so coming from their motivation is to solve the problem that they might have brought to you. Uh, and there's a whole process to then how you can take it beyond that. But if we look at that initial interaction, what are the questions that we need to ask to better, to better connect this person to what's going to motivate them to do what they need to do to get their health back on track? So there's a series of them, but they're really informed by um, 
an understanding of the psychology of what most people do when they have an unpleasant experience like having a back pain, neck pain, headaches, infertility, whatever it is, whatever the reason that they might be seeking your care. Um, in general, psychologists talk about um, people existing on a continuum of either copers at one end versus catastrophizers at another end. And um, catastrophizers are the people who we as chiropractors often find quite challenging to deal with because they're they're exaggerating the real size of the problem. Oh my God, this is terrible. I don't know how I, I'm going to get through tomorrow. This is just, you know, you've got to help me. And so they, they've got a distortion on the size of the problem. The challenge is that it, um, this continuum is very, very culturally determined. And so most people that we interact with in Australia are more towards the coping end of it, where we celebrate that toughness and just, you know, getting on with it and not yep. uh, having a high pain tolerance and those sort of things. The challenge is, though, that we've been, the people who come to see us have often distorted the real size of the problem as a coping strategy. Oh, it's not mm. so bad. Look, I can still, yeah, I can't play golf and I can't, well, this, in this scenario, I can't pick up my daughter, but my husband can and she's getting big enough that she can walk around by herself. And you tell yourself a story which is a, a distortion of the truth. Now, if we ask questions in a way that is uh, not, is very uh, just direct, really. So it would be rather than telling me about it when it's at its best. So tell me, Anthony, tell me about this issue when it's at its worst. Right. And then yep. it allows them for a moment to come out of that or tell me yes. what this problem is stopping you from doing. Those That's type great. of questions. So that then the motivation to action is coming from them rather than from you. Yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I tell you, Martin, the whole psychology of communication really fascinates me. And clearly, you've got a, a very strong grasp of it. So the seminars uh, that you'll be doing uh, for the patient comms circuit with the ACA, are they single day seminars? Yes. Yes. Single day. You will run through. Uh, that continuum that we were talking about, about strategies to build a relationship, um, strategies to reduce uncertainty, and a big part on strategies that come from people that are based on their goals and interaction with them, um, and how we can bridge people from a pain level of understanding through a prevention and uh, uh, ultimately, if your practice model supports more of a performance idea, how do you do that, both from a conceptual perspective, but also we'll be giving people strategies and templates on the day, all in one day. Fantastic. I've got the dates actually here. So Launceston, 31st of July, Adelaide, 14th of August, Melbourne, 4th of September, Brisbane, 12th of September, Sydney, 25th of September, and Perth, 14th of November. Fingers crossed uh, we'll be able to uh, travel around, or at least you'll be able to travel around. Certainly, I would imagine that people um, in their own states and, and cities area, they should be able to get to at least one of those. So, Martin, thank you yeah. so much for your, for your time. And I really look forward to... Uh, to seeing and hearing everything you have to say at the, um, at the ACA patient comms circuit. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. Be sure, um, be sure you work with you on your communication skills and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm -hmm.